Well, welcome to our program today, The Wonderful Words of Life, where for the next 30 minutes we're going to be studying the Word of God. We'll be in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews today, and uh, it's one exciting, exciting epistle. And I know that you'll enjoy this study. But before we begin, let's go ahead and hear from the psalmist. Notice what he says. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. That is a psalm with a tinge of prophecy in it. There is coming a day where all flesh will praise his holy name, that there will no longer be sin, sin will be no more, there will no longer be rebellion. And I know you and I are looking forward uh, to that day with, with much anticipation. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we embark upon this study, we ask the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us to help us. Lord, to anoint our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our heart to understand. Father, to fill our mouth with good things, Lord, and we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, praise God. We are in the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. This begins uh, the section of the New Testament called the general epistles. However, this epistle I have entitled the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. And the reason I say that is based upon the teaching and uh, the commentary of the early church. I want to read to you a quote from Barnes in his introduction to Hebrews. Notice what he says. He says, Clement of Alexandria says that Paul wrote to the Hebrews and that this was the opinion of Panaeanus, who was at the head of the celebrated Christian school at Alexandria and who flourished about 180 A.D. Notice now we're talking uh, about uh, those who lived in the second century now. Uh, and this um, scholar lived near Palestine. And Barnes goes on and he says, and he must have been acquainted with the prevailing opinions on the subject. And his testimony must be regarded as proof that the epistle was regarded as Paul's by the churches in that region. Origen also of Alexandria ascribed the epistle to Paul. Though he says that the sentiments are those of Paul, but that the words and phrases belong to someone relating to, apostle, to the apostle's sentiments and, as it were, commenting on the words of his master. The testimony of the church at Alexandria was uniform after the time of origin that it was the production of Paul. Indeed, there seems never to have been any doubt in regard to it there. And from the commencement, it was admitted as his production. Amen. So this epistle is inspired of God and is included in the New Testament. And it gives uh, Hebrews the same authority as the rest of the New Testament books. Uh, this book was written to the Hebrew Christians, uh, those that lived in the area around Palestine. And so this epistle becomes very important to uh, Gentile readers, especially uh, us Gentiles that live in this day and time. 
because we have come over nearly 2,000 years of church history to have very little knowledge of Jewish customs. And it's interesting how Paul is going to craft using Jewish customs to bring forth Christ as the one who is superior over all. And I tell you, this makes uh, the book of Hebrews very, very uh, exciting. Notice something else, a quote from Barnes in his introduction to Hebrews. He says, or rather he writes, the testimony of the ancient church was uniform on this point, that the epistle was not only written to the Hebrew Christians, but to those who were in Palestine. Lardner affirms this to be the testimony of Clement of Alexandria. We've already read his quote of Jerome, uh, Euthalius, Chrysostrum, Theodoret, and Theophylact, and adds that this was the general opinion of the ancients. You'll find these quotes in his works, volume four on pages 80 and 81, the London edition of 1829. And I'm sure if you want to uh, read the entire introduction to Hebrews, I'm sure you could find that online somewhere. Um, I have it in my records. It is rather lengthy, but it is worth a good read. Uh, Most scholars now place the writing of this epistle at around 61 to 63 AD. This was uh, just before uh, the end of Paul's life. And many assume that it was written after his initial release from prison before his rearrest and his martyrdom for the faith. So uh, this is a very, very exciting book, and it's a very informative book. It sets forth Christ exactly uh, who he is. So let's go ahead and let's begin Hebrews chapter 1. I've entitled this chapter, The Greatness of God's Son. And in this subtitle, we're going to be talking about the majesty of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And we'll begin in verse 1. Notice, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, if you have a more modern translation, you'll understand that sundry times means in many parts and diverse manners means in many ways. So in many parts and in many ways, God spake in time past through the prophets and verse 2, it says, And then these last days has spoken unto us by his Son. So when Paul says that, he, that God spake in times past to the prophets, just exactly what uh, does he mean? Well, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, notice what uh, Moses writes. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So God appeared to Abram in a vision. That's one way that God speaks uh, or spake to the fathers in the Old Testament. Now notice in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 12. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. Now notice in this passage of scripture, that God spake to Jacob in a dream. Amen. About the ladder going up to heaven, coming down to the earth, angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And then God in that dream spoke to him concerning the promise that he initially made to Abraham. Now, coming over into Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, notice what Moses writes. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him 
ye shall hearken. And of course, we know that uh, that what Moses was prophesying here would be the prophet Messiah to come and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled the Lord Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming uh, Messiah. But notice that uh, that Moses says that God uh, is going to speak to uh, the children concerning uh, his will, his plan and his purpose. Now to Jeremiah in chapter 18, verse two, notice it says, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my words. So another way that God speaks to his people is through his words or through the word of God. Actually, through meditation, the word of God comes alive and many times this revelation will become uh, so real it would seem as if the, the words that on the pages lift themselves up out of the pages and so that you and I can can see that very plainly and very clearly. Uh, this can happen in scriptures that we've read over many, many times, maybe dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. But in this one particular instance, the Holy Spirit wants us to clearly see and reveal something to us. And this can actually happen to you. This is a, a uh, manifestation of God's grace and of his love concerning the living word of God. All right. Now, in Daniel, notice in chapter two and verse 28, Notice what Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. Notice that, that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter, day, latter days thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. So these are the many different forms in which God spoke to those in the Old Testament. But notice that these same forms God speaks to us today. He can speak to us in visions. He can speak to us in dreams. Uh, he can speak to us through the words of others. He can speak to us through his word. Amen. And so dreams and visions become very, very important. Now, we have to be sure and absolutely sure that when we're talking about dreams and visions that we know and that we confirm from the word of God that these visions and dreams are accurate. So we judge everything by the word of God. I don't care if we have a dream. I don't care what vision we have. I don't care what uh, prophet says, whatever prophecy is given to us. If it does not line up with the word of God, then we are not to act upon it. Amen. As a matter of fact, we're not to act upon prophecy at all. Uh, we're just to lay it on the shelf because prophecy, if it's from God, uh, it will fulfill itself. We don't have to go out and fulfill it. Now, if God gives us a command to go do something, we better go do it. Amen. Uh, that's a word of wisdom, not necessarily a word of prophecy. All right. Verse two. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, notice this first part of this verse hath. In these last days spoken unto us by his son. Now, God spoke in the Old Testament to the prophets. But in these last days, he is speaking and is speaking to us by his son. So all the words and sayings of the prophet have been eclipsed by the words of the son of God. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill those things that were spoken concerning him. As a matter of fact, that's what he told his disciples. 
He says, all the things that, that were said of me in the prophets and in the Psalms have all come true. Um, now, uh, Robertson says uh, that the term hath spoken actually is the first aorist indicative, uh, if you actually know what that is. <laughs> Amen. But it implies did speak. In other words, he spoke as a final and full revelation of the plan and the purpose of God. Amen. And so that's important for us. Jesus has brought to us a full revelation of the manifestation of God's plan and purpose for you and for me. So all of everything in the scripture, all the Old Testament and all the New Testament is all summed up in one person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. So and also that this statement, it sets forth the purpose of this entire epistle that the person and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been given to us is, like I said, the final and the full revelation of God's plan and purpose for you and for me. Now, notice he also says he also writes and he says, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Notice that that Christ created the universe and he has been appointed heir over all of it. Amen. And of course, we know that from many, many scriptures, uh, John 12, 45, uh, John chapter one, verses one through four. Uh, these scriptures point to the fact of uh, Philippians chapter two, five, five through ten, you know, and, and other scriptures point to us. Uh, Romans chapter one, verse four, point to us the fact that Jesus is God and creator of the heaven and earth. He is the one that uh, is the second person of the Godhead. Amen. Now, notice verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice that Paul writes and he says that Jesus is the brightness of his glory. And this actually means that Christ is not only does not only reflect the brightness of God's glory. He is an original source of that glory. Why? Because he's in union with God, the father. Amen. And we've already quoted John one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Pros, ton, theon, speaking of an equality. You stand face to face or side by side with a fellow you stand next to him on an equality of basis. You have the same mind. You have the same uh, being. You have the same presence. Amen. Hallelujah. And that's exactly what Paul, um, rather what John is stating in John chapter one, verse one, that in all respects that Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead. Now, in the Trinity, there is a submission among equals. Jesus is submitted to God, the father. The Holy Spirit is submitted to Jesus. Amen. These three, even though they're persons, they all form one God. Amen. Co-equal and co-eternal, just like the body of Christ has many members, but all the members are considered one body in Christ. So and that should not be that really hard to understand. Now, notice that. Uh, that Paul also says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the exact likeness of his being, the TEV says, the living Bible says all that God's son is and does mark him as God. 
The Revised Standard Version says, bears the very stamp of his nature. Amen. So you know the old phrase, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then guess what? It's a duck. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. Amen. We're not calling the Lord Jesus a duck. We're just using that for an example. So uh, him bearing the marks, mark him as God, the likeness of his being, the very stamp of his nature. Amen. In all respects, the Lord Jesus Christ is God, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And notice that Paul also says, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Amen. His powerful word. And then finally, when he had by himself, notice that when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This word purged means to cleanse forever. Amen. When you came to Christ, all of your past sins were washed away in the blood. Praise God. Amen. You became a brand new person inside. Whatever ordinance, whatever uh, uh, condemnation that God had against you because of your sins, all of that was washed away. All of it was wiped clean. You have a fresh, clean board. Amen. Hallelujah. And because of the supremacy of Christ, because he's been raised, because he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, because he ever lives to intercede for us. All of our faults and failures present and in the future. Amen. Uh, if we'll confess them. Notice what the word says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Not only when we repent, does God forgive us? He cleanses us anew. Amen. We're cleansed continually by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have to be humble and we have to be repentive. Amen. Praise the Lord. And, he's, and of course, the word of God says he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he has purged our sins. Amen. And he sat down. Notice that ver in, in this last part of this verse. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, the only time a person is able to sit down is when his work is finished. Amen. What Jesus did in his death, burial and resurrection is a finished work. Praise God. Now, you and I, in virtue of the fact that we've come to Christ, we've repented of sins, we've asked him to come into our heart and life. And now we have received new birth. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. We have received new birth. That finished work of Christ has now affected our heart and our life. And now we're enjoying the benefits of that finished work. Praise God. And now we are to go on under the things of God from glory to glory. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Now we're in verse four. We're going to begin the second section. And this is entitled The Greatness of God's Son, His Superiority Over Angels. Notice what Paul writes here in verse four, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So now Paul begins now to compare the superiority of Christ over all of the Old Testament personages. And he begins with angels. Notice he says, being made so much better. Now, this has nothing to do with uh, creation, has nothing to do with Jesus being a creative work of God. Amen. That's foolishness. 
this word uh, being made uh, carries the idea of becoming or coming upon a stage. And in these last days came Jesus Christ came forth. Amen. And as him coming forth, taking upon himself a human body, amen, being coming the infinite God man, he was made so much superior uh, to the angels. Amen. And this has to do with his exaltation of rank. Amen. Praise God. And we know that he is the mediator. He is the son of God. That's his nature. He is the infinite God man. And he has been exalted above all of the angels. The angels ministered unto him. He didn't minister to the angels. The angels ministered unto him. And I like the fact that uh, the NIV says he is much superior to the angels. The Living Bible says he is far greater than the angels. And then uh, the last part of this verse says, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than name. Well, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, five through ten, where God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. He is exalted above the angels. Praise the Lord. All right. Verse five. For unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Praise God. Notice Paul says, and a term in these verses, have I begotten thee? Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And Paul is applying this portion of scripture specifically now, specifically to the resurrection and not to the creation. Well, how do you know that, Brother John? Well, because Luke recorded Paul's words in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Acts 13, verse 33. Notice what Paul wrote, what he said, and what Luke wrote. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And of course, we know that Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Amen. So God has always considered Jesus Christ to be his son, capital S-O-N. And being his son, he is superior to the angels and to human beings. I mean, haven't you just sat down and just meditated upon the otherness of Christ? How the Lord Jesus was so other than you and, and me, how his person was so far superior and exalted. I tell you, it was Jesus himself who said this to Pilate. He says, do you not think that at this very moment I could call 12 legions of angels to come uh, to my aid? But then he says, but then how else would the plan of God be fulfilled? Amen. See, God had the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ had the command of legions of angels. 
No, he was not a created being. He was the creator. He's the one that created all things. Paul tells us that in Colossians. He created all things by Christ Jesus. And notice he says, I will be to him a father. Amen. And he. Let's just read this passage of scripture again. For unto which of the angels said he at any time thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God, amen, worship him. Now, when Paul wrote this, I will be to him a father, he's gathering that uh, that phrase from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where Nathan was prophesying to David. And if you want a full import of what, uh, Dave, what uh, the Apostle Paul means, then read Psalm 89, verses 20 through 29. And this is the, the, the prophetic uh, psalm that pictures uh, David uh, and David's servant. Notice in verses 28 and 29 of that psalm, it says, My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Well, we know that in the flesh that could not possibly be true because by the time of Joseph and Mary, uh, the throne of David had long since ceased to exist. Uh, Joseph was one of the rightful heirs of the throne of David, but there was no throne at that time. So it had to pertain to the seed of David, which we know to be Christ. And also this term, first begotten into the world, it speaks of preeminence. It speaks of appointment. It doesn't speak of being a created being. I know uh, there are many in the church world today that look to Christ as the first of God's creation, but that is not true. Notice what Barnes says here. He says, it is given to the second person of the Trinity. Speaking of uh, this here, this, this verse, this passage of scripture. It is given to the second person of the Trinity because he became God incarnate. He didn't become God. He became God incarnate. In other words, he became God manifest in the flesh. So that so that but for the incarnation and the economy of redemption, he would not have had this name. Amen. His name was Jesus. Salvation. Praise God. And that name was given to him because he was God manifest in the flesh. Praise God. The living Bible says, and by being raised from the dead, he was proved to be the mighty son of God with the holy nature of God in himself. And also the TEV translation says, as to his divine holiness, he was shown with great power to be the son of God by being raised from death. And then finally, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. This is a quote uh, from the Septuagint version of the, uh, version of the Old Testament, which uh, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which says, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Praise God. So we see Paul's train of thought here. He's laying line upon line Christ's superiority to angels. Amen. That Christ is not created or the first of God's creation. He is the creator. He's the one that created all things which are in heaven, which are in earth and under the earth. 
Amen. All beings, everything, praise God, were made by him and also, Paul says, and for him. All right. Now, the last section of this subheading, verse seven, and of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, even thy God, therefore God, even thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but you remain. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? I like to read verse 14 in the John Dunning translation. Are not they all just ministering spirits under the Lord Jesus? And are they not sent forth to minister for them who be the heirs of salvation? Didn't the angels come and minister to the Lord Jesus after the 40 day trial was ended? Amen. Praise God. These are all quotes from Psalm 45 and also from Psalm 104. So we see that the Lord Jesus was not part of the creation. He was not a created being. He was the one to whom all things were created. Amen. Praise God. Now, notice something that, uh, well, I've run out of time, so I can't conclude. I can't go on any further. But just know this, that Jesus is so far more superior to the angels. Amen. That he is not a created being, that he is the second person of the Godhead. And because of that, he has become a great and mighty savior. And you can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to save you, but to keep you. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We trust, Holy Spirit, that the Word of God will just take hold and take root, cause it to be Spirit of God, to take hold and take root and produce uh, in us the way God had planned it. We'll give you the praise and honor and glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you were to die today, that you would be prepared for heaven? If you're not sure, then I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Father God, I come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. I repent and ask you to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I surrender my heart and life to you. By faith, I believe I receive you as my Lord and Savior, and I thank you for receiving me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed this prayer and desire to know more about the gift of Christ that the Heavenly Father offers you, then email us at rbtc86 at gmail.com. We will be glad to answer your questions promptly and provide you at your request with materials that will help you to grow in your faith in the Lord Jesus. This is Patsy Dunning. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. And let me remind you to tune in to this station at the same time next week to hear more of the wonderful words of life. 
God bless you and remember what Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life.